Okay, Yuli, would you open us up in prayer, please? Yes. Uh, Father, we, uh, we thank you for today. Thank you for, uh, for giving us another day, God, to, uh, to live for you, to do everything onto your glory. I uh, thank you, God, for, uh, for the jobs and everything you are provided for us, that you are a provider, you always care for us, Lord. Uh, God, I pray for the class. I pray that, um, that everything from, from the lesson that Pedro has prepared and everything that, uh, that, that we haven't talked about yet, I pray, God, that you just pour out your, your wisdom and your knowledge and, and your instruction. I pray that we learn effectively and that we can use it wisely and that we will listen to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit moves in us and through us. When we go into the streets, when we go into the campuses, when we go into our jobs, and anywhere we go, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit we will always be spirit-led. That every conversation we have, that whenever somebody wants to ask us, ask us for, for what we believe and why we believe, that we give them uh, with boldness and answer. And if they want to argue or in some way debate, I pray, God, that we, we do not debate to try and, and win or in some way try to uh, uh, be prideful in any way. I pray, God, that we do it in excellence that we would have, have a, a humble heart uh, before you, Lord, that we would listen to you and what to say to people, Lord. I pray, God, that many lives will be transformed through, through the love that we pour into others, Lord, on the streets and at our jobs and wherever we are. I pray that you continue to move in our hearts, continue to move in our thoughts, in our studies. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Wonderful prayer, my brother. Thank you very much. Okay, we're going to get into lesson nine today, week nine, lesson nine. It is going to be actually the last chapter we go over in the book. Uh, the last chapter of the book, chapter 10, is uh, on how to do it practically. So we, you guys definitely should read it. I would recommend you guys to do that, but it's not going to be much of what I bring up. I, I think most of it will just be us practicing for our discussion with our friendly neighborhood atheist, uh, Spencer, that will be joining with us on uh, the 26th. So I just got confirmation from him that he will be here. So next, uh, excuse me, the 19th, we'll be doing it the 19th. So basically this week is the last week of, of going through the lecture and the book. And then he is saying... No, I don't need the 19th. He's saying, I said the 23rd. Oops, I gave him the wrong date. It's the 19th. Okay, let me just make sure, September. Okay, so then uh, today we'll go over uh, confronting unbelief. Next week we'll go over the practicals of each argument. And then the 19th we will have him as a guest, and hopefully he will confirm for then as well. Okay, let's get into our notes today. Let's have Yuli uh, read the scripture, please. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. Yes, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Amen. So we've had this scripture before, and now we're going to use it uh, particularly as demolishing the argument of unbelief, wherever that argument may come from, from uh, atheists or agnostics, other religions. We're going to now tear down those arguments. Now, if you remember when we started the book here, he gave us three main 
parts of apologetics, proof, defense, and offense. And so let's just go over these quickly in review. When we look at proof, we're talking about the arguments that we give for the existence of God. We believe the transcendental argument or tag is good. The five main classical arguments, the argument from the first cause, design, morality, ontological, ontological argument, and the epistemological argument. And then lastly, of course, most importantly, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that was when we what we went over for proof. Then for defense, last week we combined two chapters and learned about defending against the argument of evil, uh, the argument from the problem of evil, which is their best argument against us as atheists and unbelievers. And then um, also defending, we talked about defending the gospel during the time of the gospel. So technically you could say we've learned how to defend the gospel, the New Testament, as well as the main non-believing argument against the faith, which is the problem of evil. And how we answer that is we talk about it's unknowable without God to even understand evil. And we have a defense, the free will, greater good argument. Number three, we uh, are going on the offense today with arguments against unbelief and basically defending our belief, showing the unbelievers uh, absurdity and inability to meet preconditions for any meaningful discussion. So these are really the three main parts of the book. And today you'll be able to say that you have covered them and that you've been able to do them or should be able to do them effectively. So like I said, next week, the 12th, we will go over them individually. Like I said, I'll probably assign uh, each each of you one of these main arguments, the tag, um, breaking down the five main classical. Depending if, if all seven of you come, there should be one, seven arguments here. So that should be good that you guys can all learn. And then you guys can practice your defense against them. Because remember, not only is the problem of evil something we have to defend against, but all the arguments. And then you can learn how to go on the attack and respond back with uh, today's lesson. Okay, now here are three defenses against unbelief. And before we get into this, let me just remind everybody uh, what unbelief is. Unbelief is uh, what Romans says. And let me go back to it because I think that would be helpful to actually look at the scripture here. Uh, Romans talks about unbelief being the suppression of the truth. So, we, we know that there is truly no person that's without, that has an excuse, rather. There's no person that has an excuse to disbelieve in God, because according to Romans 1.18, everything they need to believe in the God of the Bible has already been given to them. So look at this uh, verse that we've read many times. Uh, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Now let's keep going 20 and onward. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory 
of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal being, human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And so what we want to do is make sure that everybody that we're talking to understands that they are without excuse before God. So unbelief, according to the biblical perspective, is rebellion. Now, somebody may not have understood all the things that God was revealing to them, and they may have uh, the need of clarity, but that is not the same thing as rejecting flat out the claims of the Bible. So we're not talking about people who are hungry for truth, who are wanting to learn, who may have some wrong ideas that God wants to correct through the gospel preacher. Uh, we're talking about people, as we learned before in the Proverbs, it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. We're talking about someone who is literally saying, I understand what you are saying. Like, I get what you're trying to tell me about the gospel, about my need of salvation, about what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, you know about him creating the world, etc. And I don't believe it. I don't believe what you are telling me. And so those people will be without excuse, okay? And those are the people we're talking about confronting. And they could be from a different religion, or they could be someone that says, I don't have any religion. I'm an atheist agnostic. And remember, that is a religious belief, no matter how much they try to deny it. Now, one of the things we need to do just right here, just practically speaking, is, is kind of just think about this question of unbelief. Are they really unbelievers or are they suppressors? And so the question would come out like this, and I've heard this come up in other debates. Uh, they will, as you tell them, I know that you know there is the God of the Bible. I know this because the Bible says you're suppressing it. They may say, no, put me to a lie detector test and I will show you that I really, really don't believe in your God, I am not suppressing it. Well, here's the problem. It's a confusion of terms. They may very well be able to pass the lie detector test that says they don't believe in God. But at the same time, they will be suppressing the knowledge as the Bible says. And so we have to understand the psychology of what is being presented here in, in this passage of Romans. It's not saying that they cannot act as a disbeliever, become in their mind psychologically a disbeliever, and start to live their life in disbelief. That's not what it's saying. They truly could do that. God freely allows them to do that, to live as if God didn't exist. And I can actually show that uh, in the book of Ephesians. As we are doing our sermon series on the book of Ephesians, we can see that um, I believe it's Ephesians chapter 2. It says they lived as if God was not even in the world when he talked about the Gentiles. See, uh, here we go. Chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, and without God in the world. So that is not a contradiction to what Romans is saying. 
What it's simply doing is explaining to us the psychology of the unbeliever. So the unbeliever can freely choose not to believe in God and then live as if God doesn't exist. But how did they get to that point? Did that so that did that unbelief come through natural growing up in the world, a natural process, or was it a result of suppression and pushing down the truth and becoming numb? And that's what we believe is happening. We believe that Romans is describing what they are actually doing to become a non-believer. They are suppressing truth and are a non-believer. So it would not shock me if they would pass a lie detector test that would say, I don't believe in God. And so if they, if they threw that back in our face and said, see, I'm not suppressing anything. I actually really don't believe there's not a God. I would say, yes, we understand truthfully right now we believe that you believe that. I get that. But how did you get to that point? How did this belief become so convincing? You had to become a suppressor of the truth. And yes, their environment could have helped, their parents, etc. But the point of Romans is, is that they will be held accountable for what they knew and when they suppressed it. And it could have just been them lying in bed at night. They were looking at their ceiling, wondering the meaning of life. They suppress it and say, there is no meaning of life because my parents told me so, and I don't want to make my parents mad. It could have been when they were in college and they, and they might have been a Christian at that time, and then they hear about evolution and they start to believe it, yet in their conscience they feel, this doesn't quite make sense of my morality. I don't sense that I'm an animal, but I'll suppress that to go on with my college students, to live without a right and wrong on my mind, a conscious uh, um, observant of the law, etc. You know, it could come in a variety of ways, but there are times and places, and I believe at the judgment seat, God will show us and show them when they suppressed it. And they may even have forgotten it by now. And the Bible actually talks about there being a reprobate or there being the person that grieves the Holy Spirit and, and, and sends the unpardonable sin. And the sin against the Holy Spirit is not attributing to the Holy Spirit that which he is doing. So in the time of Jesus, it was blaspheming the Holy Spirit to not attribute to the Holy Spirit his work in Jesus's miracles. But this could also come from the person not seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart as legitimate through their conscience, speaking to them about the law of God, uh, about all of the things of logic and of science and how it points towards a creator. And once again, they could suppress that, but they would be doing that against the Holy Spirit. They'd be doing that against the Holy Spirit that's been given to convict them of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. So hopefully you have a, you know, a pretty thorough understanding of what it means to be an unbeliever, how they got there, and the psychology of them, and how they'll then be judged. Now, let's talk about answering them, because there's going to come a time where we need to now defend our belief, but then begin to attack theirs. Now, all that you have learned up in this point, these different arguments, the tag, the classical arguments, um, the gospel, the argument against evil, showing them that they're the ones that have the problem of evil, all of that truly can be used for an offense. But now we're going to be just like really specific to them. 
and say, you don't have a leg to stand on, okay? So the first thing that we're going to do is they start saying their unbelieving statements and are really assuming that we owe them more explanations what we are going to do is basically stop them. And I'm not going to read all this here from, from Dr. Frame, but what we're basically going to do is stop them. And we're going to say, God doesn't owe you any more explanation. Like you don't deserve it. You don't deserve this a trial that you want to put God on. So you, you have it twisted to think that the mindset you have now is the mindset that God is going uh, that that you're going to move forward in the things of God. So it's good to just stop them and say, let me just read to you a scripture and help you to understand the God of the Bible, okay? Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in heaven and does whatever pleases him, okay? Another scripture under that same, under that same mindset is Psalm 135.6. Psalm 135.6 teaches us that the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Now, this is where we want to go back to that proverb, those two proverbs, and come to the understanding there is a fool that we answer, and then there is a fool that we don't answer. The kind of fool that we do answer is a the kind of fool we do answer is the fool that says, I want to reason with you, and I am open to learn. Okay, let's go to Proverbs 25, 6, and let me pull it up here for you. Or, uh, yeah, 25, 4, rather. Proverbs 25, 4, and let me put it up. 26, 4. Oopsie. 26, 4, and I'll put up the scripture here. So, the Bible says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be like a scarlet in Isaiah chapter one, I will make them as white as snow. So when we're dealing with the unbeliever, we want to make sure that they're willing to learn. So when we tell the unbeliever like, hey, as we get into this discussion, I want you to know where I'm coming from. God is not on trial. According to my, and this is what really separates us once again as presuppositionalists. We don't even believe you have the, the ability to explain anything, how you're breathing, how you're here, how you have a mind, how there's a creation. And we're trying now to preach to you, give you the gospel, and you're rejecting it. So let me ask you this. Are you willing to reason with us and to use your heart and your mind to open up to truth, to open up your heart and your mind to truth? And if they say, no, I don't even care, then we can just say, God speed. Okay, God be with you. God bless you. We're going to move on to somebody else because that's the kind of fool we're not going to answer. But what is the kind of fool we're going to answer? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. If they say, sure, and as many atheists do, and, and today if I get to, to some time, I'm going to play some of these debates because hopefully I can get done with this early because I actually want you to see a real debate and, and, and unbelief being confronted. And they say, and, and I've heard them say, yes, I want as much truth as is out there, okay? So, you know, and they may say, whatever you bring me, I will confront with what I think is truth or whatever. But yeah, if you can show me what I think is wrong, I think is true is wrong, I'm totally with changing my beliefs. Okay, good. Well, here's the deal. We believe in a God who doesn't owe you anything. 
So we believe in a God that uses his Holy Spirit through his word to convict. And those who hear the conviction and humbly respond are only the ones that are saved. And at this point, we could go through scriptures that talk to them about, um, you know, the, the Jewish people asking for signs and God going, I don't owe you a sign. Only wicked people ask for that. So it's a real attacking of their mindset. It, it's, it's against even what some of these classical uh, apologist movies are based on, like God's Not Dead, where the guy says, God's on trial and we're going to make you the jury. No, 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 no. We're saying, no, no, no. You don't get to do that. You want to do that? I'm going to the next conversation because I don't, I don't put my God on trial with you. If you're open to reasons, if you're open to a discussion, let's discuss. And I would say that to a Muslim, to anybody. I would say to the Muslim, are you willing to renounce Islam and become a Christian? The atheist, are you willing to do that? So those are real simple things you can ask them in the conversation and then explain to them, our God doesn't owe you anything else. You're already in his creation. You're already breathing his air. And at some point, the reason why you are right now the way you are, whether you're a Muslim, a Hindu, or whatever, is because you have suppressed the truth of the, of, of the real God, of the true and living God. You have suppressed that and ended up here in a ditch. Now, I'm here to come and bring you out of that ditch. Do you want to listen? Okay? So that's the first thing that we want to do is just kind of shut down that mindset and show them in the Bible we're not here to put God on trial. And if you remember, Jesus didn't allow God to be put on trial. Paul didn't allow God to be put on trial. That was never their modus operandi. So let us not uh, do that either. Uh, the next thing that we're just going to say back, and we can use this in conversation, is rationalism and irrationality make no sense without the Christian God. Cornelius Van Til, and this comes from our book, argued that every unbelieving system, and this would be Islam, this would be everything else, Hinduism, agnosticism, okay, Every unbelieving system of thought, because it reflects unregenerate hearts, is simultaneously rationalistic and irrationalistic. While claiming that their reason has ultimate authority, rationalism, unbelievers do not acknowledge anything that connects, sense, connects reason and sense with objective truth. Therefore, they are irrational. And so what this basically means is that when the people are arguing with us, what are they already using? They're already using their reasons. They're already using logic. The Muslim, I was just watching a debate with the Muslim, he's all, uh, with the Christian, he's already using all of that, but he cannot explain it. Now, you may think that a Muslim or another theist can say, well, I have, a, you know, I have God and I have this belief and it explains it. No, 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 no. Your God himself is irrational because your God does not exist. Your God is not the God of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you can't explain the, 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 uh, the foundation of reason and logic. Uh, and that's why we say as presuppositionalists that generic theism doesn't work. And we need to stop pretending that it does. So um, in some of the debates that I've sent you with uh, uh, Tur Frank Turek and others, they'll, they'll be okay with arguing for a generic God. And that's what the classicalist does. They argue for the generic God and move you to the Christian God. The evidentialist just starts with the Christian God trying to give you evidence for it. The presuppositionalist attacks the beliefs and the underlying presuppositions of all unbelieving systems, shows that they are all built on sand, and then uses proof, defense, and offense, okay? And so we have to remember that as we go into attacking the unbeliever, we're showing them that they are irrational. 
they are irrational. So one of the ways I was doing this with the Muslim is because Islam has um, a trailer hitched to Christianity. So they have to deal with Christianity in a real way. They affirm the prophets and uh, of the Old Testament and New Testament, especially Jesus. They affirm the Injil, the, the gospel. And so right there, they now have to make sense out of things in Christianity. Now, with Hinduism, we don't have so easy of a bridge. And I'll, I'll share that with you in just a moment, a bridge to them. But with, with Islam, the bridge is right there. So now they have to explain why our Bible says 600 years before Muhammad in Galatians, if another prophet comes and teaches a different gospel, they should be anathemized. Explain to us how in the world we're supposed to take you serious and not call you a false prophet when you change our gospel. And our gospel had been already written in creeds for hundreds of years prior to Muhammad, had been uh, preserved in our text. We have texts that are is, is way older than Muhammad. And so there's just no excuse. It's either A, this is an illiterate prophet, probably demon-possessed, telling a whole bunch of lies, or you... Uh, have not explained to us how your prophet can even come close to fulfilling anything of the Bible. So, you know, and, and, and they can't explain it. So we show them it's irrational. The moment you tell us Jesus wasn't crucified, that's irrational. You told us you had a rational system, but our entire Bible says he's crucified. All of the secular historians say he's crucified. History of Rome says he's crucified. And now You've said he's not crucified. Well, your prophet's a false prophet. He's lying, demon-possessed, etc. Well, we can draw that same bridge with Eastern philosophy and other religions. Uh, we can, like we said before, go to the book and the man, say, okay, let's see if we're talking about the same God. Our God said not to make images of himself, that these images would be mute. They couldn't talk. They couldn't listen. They would be powerless. Why is it you have images of your God? See, there's the connection. That's irrational. It's irrational to have images of the God of the universe. We are saying the God of the universe uh, transcends matter, space, and time, yet you're, you're putting him inside of a piece of wood. And really all that is is demonology. Demons love idols because they can be worshipped through those idols, and then they can start to possess the people that are willing to do that. And so idolatry is an open door for demons, and that's how it works. And so that's put into their mind through, through evil spirits. And go on from there, right? So, and it's just, it's always going to be present in unbelieving systems against Christianity that they're irrational. Now, let me say this before I go back into the notes. Um, another good argument, or it, not a, well, it could be used as an argument, but it's a point that I want you guys to be able to address, whether it's an argument or a question from a Christian, okay? And that is, someone may say, well, if, especially as a presuppositionalist, so there are certain ways we as presuppositionalists put ourselves out to be attacked by the non-believer that the classicalist doesn't, or the evidentialist doesn't. Here is one of them. And I haven't heard it brought against us, but I have heard it as a question when presuppositional people were talking. And that is, if only Christianity based in this doctrinal sense can make sense of the whole world, what about those who have just varying beliefs but are still pretty close to Christians, like Jehovah Witnesses, 
or maybe even even those closer to Christians like Catholics or like those who belong to the Church of Christ, uh, like the Duck Dynasty folks. They believe you have to be baptized to be saved. The Church of Christ that they belong to believes you have to be baptized to be saved. That unless you're baptized, you're not saved. Church of Christ, look up their doctrines, okay? And some of them were against singing with instruments, so forth and so on. And so as I've heard the question brought up, and it could be an argument one day, I want you to be ready for it. They would say, if Christianity is the only foundation for all of this truth, what version of Christianity? Does the Jehovah Witness version give explanation for all these truths? Or does only the Trinitarian believers do it? Okay, well now, do you have to be Trinitarian and King James only? Or can those who believe in different versions of the Bible, translations rather, uh, do it? Uh, does it have to be sola fide, sola fide, only by faith, sola scriptura? Or, you know, you know how, how do you make the divisions? Because once someone doesn't believe in all of these things, now they are outside of being able to possess truth. And so it could be used as an argument that really then nobody will ever possess the truth because we can never know for certain every single doctrine of the Bible. And now the unbeliever may say, you are uh, Christians, and I have heard the argument used like this, you as Christians have so many differences, this couldn't be God's truth because there's not enough clarity. Here's the answer to that. The answer is that the Bible talks about there being fundamental things, you know, core beliefs that are present in the Christian worldview. And I do believe that they can be named, and I named them in our 201 book, the belief in the triune God. I don't believe any version of Christianity, quote-unquote Christianity, uh, Mormonism, which believes in a triad of God, three separate gods serving as one council of gods, or Jehovah Witnesses that only have one singular person named the Father as God but makes a lesser God. I don't believe those can give grounding to rationality. Why? Because the scripture only affirms the Trinitarian God. And so if you're denying the Trinitarian God, you're denying the Christian worldview, and the Christian worldview is what possesses truth, okay? But you can begin to see how people in these beliefs can still go far with the worldview that they have based on the Christian worldview, even though it's, uh, the writing, even though it's turning from it, but they can go far in it. So, for example... If you bring up Sir Isaac Newton, someone may bring back to you that Sir Isaac Newton probably wasn't an Orthodox Christian because he denied the Trinity or believed a little bit differently about that. And so I can say, Sir Isaac Newton on the Trinity and see that he probably disagreed with the Trinity. And so he was considered by most scholars to be an Aryan similar to a Jehovah Witness that uh, Jesus was a lesser being created by God. But why was he able to be still so successful? Because he built upon the principle of God as a creator and all of these things. Now, despite that, despite his wrong beliefs about the Trinity, he still could use the Christian worldview. Now, once again, this is where we would say back to the unbeliever, just because they can't justify the Christian worldview and doing what they do, doesn't mean they can't use what the Christian worldview gives, because that then goes back to why everybody else does science. Why does the atheist know science? Why does the atheist know medical uh, medicine, etc.? And so we are not saying that you have to have the justification right of your worldview to operate correctly in the world. You could use and borrow from us, just like atheists do, and on down with the various versions of Christianity 
but you can't justify it correctly. At some point, whatever it, your her, her, um, heresy you're heretical at, God must correct and deal with you then. And some heresies are more serious than others. I believe, like I said, these seven things, the triune nature of God, Jesus being God in the flesh, Jesus dying on the cross, being the only Savior for mankind's sin, Jesus bodily resurrecting and ruling and reigning with Christ, I mean, ruling and reigning with his Father in heaven right now. They're, they're coming, um, I mean, salvation then is only found in his name by faith. He is coming back to judge the world, number six. And seven, there's a heaven and a hell, an ultimate uh, place of bliss and, and paradise for the believer, and an ultimate place of punishment for the unbeliever. I believe if you walk away from those things, you probably cannot be saved. You're not guaranteed salvation. We know that. And, and then you can't justify your truth. Now, someone may say, the salvation by faith alone message, the Church of Christ agrees with all seven of these things except that. You know, are these guys some duck commander saved or not? Well, because they add something to the work of salvation, they're not guaranteed salvation according to the Bible. So as much as I love Duck Dynasty and I love that they stand for a Christian worldview, what they're dealing with in those major issues, their disagreement with a faith alone salvation, talking about Phil Robertson, Willie Robertson, Cy, et cetera, does not guarantee them salvation. So for, I consider it a heresy. Absolutely. I wouldn't allow it to be, uh, to be taught in my church, and I would stand against it and not support them to be Bible teachers. That's why you don't see me sharing their Bible teachings or their Bible studies, okay? And so and you're hearing me warn against them. Now, is God merciful? Might that be something they could get wrong and still get into heaven? Possibly. I don't think you can do that with the Trinity and a whole lot of those other beliefs, um, but they may be able to come in on God's mercy. But like I said, it's not guaranteed. So if you ever hear that, that's how I would just simply answer. I would just simply tell the people that just because Christians have disagreement or people under the belief system of quote-unquote Christianity have disagreements, it doesn't take away from our presuppositional position. What we are saying as presuppositionalists is that only the true Christian worldview can explain why we have truth the way it is. And that's where we all have to humble ourselves and come to that truth. And then when if somebody were to say, well, what about uh, you know, the things that every, you know, like you may have wrong, another Christian may have wrong, et cetera, like no Christian has everything perfectly down, you know, and we would say, yeah, that's true. We're all growing and learning things. We would just simply say to that, there's a difference between these fundamental core beliefs, things that Paul was very serious about, like in Galatians, not adding any work to the gospel. It's very serious. Jesus talking about judgment, very serious. Uh, the Trinity being the one true God and, and all the prophets saying there's no other God besides him. Okay, so we do see there are some very serious things that you have to be in, uh, believe to be in evangelicalism or to be uh, in the true body of Christ. And then we're saying those rest of the things, you know, speaking in tongues, um, you know, uh, how you see the end times, et cetera, eschatology. These things may have disagreement and we may all be growing in them, but they're not going to ultimately affect our salvation. And the Bible doesn't seem to take away any sense of, of, of place in the kingdom because of these things, because it doesn't draw them out specifically. Like, 
I, I think that the things that are the most important are the things that are the most important. And, and I remember hearing a phrase from somebody that said, I think it might have been C.S. Lewis or somebody that said, it's not the parts that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the parts that I do understand that trouble me. Because it's pretty simple what's going on here in the Bible. God is going to judge the world. We need salvation, Jesus alone, etc. Okay, and then lastly, what we want to do to their unbelief is show them that everything out there, aside from Christianity, either is an atheistic, non-God-believing system or is idolatry, and those systems are absurd. So atheism is absurd. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They cannot give an explanation for their existence, for the universe, for the truth, for logic, for math, etc. And it's absurd. It leads to ad absurdum. It leads to the continual regress. There's no end. There's no foundation. Like we've said before, when they try to tell us uh, about how we got here, just in causality, how did you get here? Well, I got here from my mom. I got here from this. Okay, how did you get? How did the world get here? Well, I got here from the bang. What banged it? Well, there was a multi-universe banging it. Okay, what what banged that? What banged that? What banged that? You know, they go back to an infinite regress of absolutely nothing, and then they just go, "I don't know what happened." That would be just like me trying to borrow a book. From, from Joe B. Joe B says, well, I don't have the book. I have to get it from, from, from Daryl. I have to get it from this person to get this person. And if you never know where the book comes from, you know, where there's a book, you're never going to get a book. You're not going to have a, a first cause unless you can explain the cause, the cause of all causes, right? And it's the same thing with logic. Where I'm, I, where did you get logic from? Well, I got it from a monkey's brain. Well, where did the monkey's brain get it from? It got it from chemicals. It got, uh, you know, it, there's no explanation. And then if they say, well, it just emerged in humans. It just came from here. Well, why did it emerge? And it just brings them right back to an infinite regress. Not only with atheism, but all religion is ultimately idolatry as well. Atheism is idolatry. Remember in Romans, they're worshiping created things. Atheism worships their own mind, worships their own intellect, worships their own self. They worship their knowledge, their ability, their freedom. Islam, idolatry. Catholicism, idolatry, every system outside of what we're talking about is true biblical Christianity. It's idolatry. It's a false way to worship God. And it's why uh, the nations got to the trouble that they were in. Remember going back to that passage in Romans. When people did not listen to God, did not retain the knowledge of God, they began to worship created things instead of the creator. Now, take that into a cultural sense. Okay, when the Aztecs began to do that, what did they replace God with? Worshiping their ancestors, worshiping their emperors. When those in the African jungles replaced God, the knowledge of God, because remember, everybody comes from Noah's Ark, and that's a whole nother proof about all major world cultures, especially the ancient ones, all have stories of global floods, all of them. All, almost all of them, or I can say all of them, all that I've studied, let's put it that way, major cultures, the Chinese culture, okay, the Greek culture, the European culture, the um, Mesopotamian culture, okay, stories of global flood in these cultures, and guess what, we all came from that flood, Noah's Ark, eight people, they knew the knowledge of God. So why did India become so pagan? Why did uh, Greece, Persia become so pagan? They didn't just come out of nowhere. They came from God-haters, God-suppressors, and over time, they exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal human beings. 
whether it was and, and birds and animals and reptiles. And then they gave, they were brought over to sensuality and sexual perversion. Now just think about this. Is it any wonder that the moment people stop worshiping God, the God of the Bible, they start acting perverted. That's exactly what happened with Noah, uh, Aaron and the, and the golden calf. That's exactly what happened in all of these world's cultures, all of the polygamy, all of the incest, all of the rape, all of the pillaging, all the homosexuality, all the lesbianism, all, you know, all the perversion, you know, being climaxed in places like Sodom and Gomorrah in the Roman empire. These uh, Roman soldiers would have boy sex servants following them around. The Greeks were known to be uh, sexually active with each other. You know, uh, this, this, this was the world, and this is the world again today. Look what happens in America, uh, United States of America, when we cast off the Bible. Now we want to cast off marriage. Now we want to cast off gender. Now we want to cast off the roles of male and woman, a man and woman in sexuality. And so it all comes down to idolatry. It all comes down to perversion as well in some way or another, perverting God's uh, plan upon the earth. Okay. So let me just pause right here, is, and then I'll give you the argument from preconditions, which I just think just tears down unbelief in a massive way. But does anybody has a question about the review as the proof, defense, and offense? Now we're learning the offense, you know, putting this all together. Or questions about defending against people's unbelief. God doesn't owe them anything. They're trying to be rational, rational in irrational ways, and it doesn't work. Or that how atheism and idolatry are all absurd because this is not the truth. This doesn't make sense of the, the proof that we have. This doesn't make sense of the evidence. Any uh, questions at this point? Earlier, you mentioned uh, generic theism. Yep. What did you mean by generic theism? Is that a term? Yeah. So basically, we were talking before about the classical apologists. They're going to use the arguments that we've talked about before that cause uh, cosmological argument, etc. And what they're going to say in their argument is I'm not even arguing for Christianity right now. So don't bring up the Bible. Don't bring up the resurrection. Don't bring up anything. Just answer these issues. And so what they believe is once they get the atheists to say, well, you know, if it goes well for them, I can explain how we're designed. I can explain why there's morality. Then they're going to come and say, now that you have to admit there's a God, some generic kind of God, a nameless, faceless God that's, and, and William Lane Craig will, will describe him as spaceless, timeless, immaterial, and all-powerful. They'll say, you know, the atheist, well, the Christian will say to the atheist, you admit that something, this kind of God like this has to exist for everything to be here. Yes. And, you know, the unbelievers doing, you know, going through the argument, right. They're like, yes, okay, you got me. Now they'll say, I'll tell you about which God that is. And they think that's what um, Paul was doing when he pointed to the unknown God. But once again, Paul never argued for a generic God first. He came in proclaiming, I know who that God is. The, the God was unknown to them, but not to him. So he never said, let's, let's come here and say, who's God is, is, is what's God uh, based on these uh, kind of parameters. He, he didn't do that. Now, Elijah did that, but once again, this was dealing with people who had turned away from God, and now they're saying that Baal 
is the God of Israel or should be the God of Israel. And he's saying, no, 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 no. The God of Israel is not Baal and you can't call him Baal and they're not the same person. Let me prove to you that Baal is not the same person we're talking about and he's not the God that's in charge of everything. So that that wasn't once again trying to come to a place where like Elijah was saying, well, I'm not going to try to prove my God to you first. I'm going to try to meet you on a neutral ground and prove a generic God. So it kind of comes back to that neutral ground thing. Like, no, he's still going there going, I know exactly who God is. Your God is wrong. My God's right. That's all I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about your God at all. And so that's where the class, so where we as the presuppositionalists may get in trouble, which I don't think it's trouble if we just explain it right, where people try to say, well, can you be a real true presuppositionalist unless you have perfect doctrine? We say that's a red herring. That's off the subject. We believe you can be a presuppositionalist with the evangelical core beliefs, what we would say mere Christianity, the basic beliefs of Christianity. But where classical apologists get in trouble is where they're arguing for a generic God. And we say, you can't do that because there's never such a thing as a generic God. And so they may say, well, we do it for the sake of argument. And I know they mean well. Now, this is where I differ from the guys like Psy. Psy and some of these other, you know, really strong precepts will say that's almost equivalent to sin. Like they're, they're, idol they're committing idolatry now because they're naming our God the unknown God. And that's like blasphemy because he's not an unknown God. He's a real God and he's revealed himself and he has a name and he has a son. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I don't believe it gets that serious. I just think it's not a biblical approach and I think we should avoid it. And whenever we're talking about God, we're always talking about the God of the Bible. Now, let me say this real quick. If we are debating the question of, is there a God? We're always doing it from the Christian perspective. But if they want to get us off onto tangents, which I saw Sai do well, and this is what I was talking to you before, if now in the debate about God, and we are defending the one true God, the Christian God, they now want us to answer biblical contradictions, we have to tell them, dude, get converted. We'll do a Bible study. That's not the debate. That's not the debate. The debate is, does this Christian God give you the answer for everything here on earth? And did he not rise his son from the dead, et cetera, et cetera? This, which woman was the first at the tomb and you're trying to get us all up? That's not even the subject now. And so you can be a Christian without understanding the narratives of the women at the tomb. You could put your faith in Jesus without understanding that. And that's what we're telling them. You, you need to face these facts first and deal with these facts later. Does that make sense, Daryl? That was a good question. Yes, sir. That makes uh, total sense. Thank you. That helped me uh, a lot. I appreciate it. Awesome. Okay, cool, guys. Let me move on to our argument. And then I really like to watch one of these debates with you that I have, and uh, I think you guys will enjoy it because it's really, you know, live, uh, practical information. Like, you'll get firsthand account here. Well, secondhand, but you'll, you'll feel like you're there. You'll, you'll, probably, have, you'll probably say, I, I can relate to being in conversations like this. Here's what I think is the knockdown argument, the attack of, um, of, first, of Second Corinthians that we just learned about, tearing down these arguments. I call it the argument from preconditions, and this is the one I want us to listen to by David Wood, and he brings it up great. And then if we have time, we'll, we'll get into the, uh, the cross-examination with him and the atheists, and it is, just, it is just one knockout blow after the other. Sometimes you don't get debates that are that clear-cut, but 
this one just wasn't even close. And the guy knew it too once it started going in these directions and in this direction with these points. Okay, so the argument for precondition goes like this. Okay, you got all this unbelief. You're a skeptic. You doubt this. You doubt this. You doubt this. And I love saying back to people, have you ever doubt, doubted your doubts? You know, why don't you be skeptical of your skepticism for a minute and relax? You know what I'm saying? It's like, dude, you're ready to throw away your existence, the knowledge of truth, you know, everything in the whole universe just so you can be right right now. Think about the stupidity of that, you know. Well, here's what I like to do in the midst of that is I say, okay, let's just think about this. We're having a disagreement about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, the gospel is real, the Bible is the truth of God, right? Okay. Well, the following preconditions, premise one, must be present for us to have any meaningful discussion, whether we're going to discuss these most important subjects or if we're just going to discuss whether or not my shirt is white or black, or are you a woman or are you a man? Or what's the best baseball team or something as trivial as where do you want to go to eat tonight? You know, what, what, what restaurant do you want to go to? There has to be preconditions for any disagreement that we will ever have in life, especially if we're going to discuss God, Jesus, etc. Here they are. The universe must exist. Okay, that's a precondition. There's got to be a universe. Number two, we've got to be two separate persons. We, we can't believe in solipsism, which is just that there's one mind creating all of this and we're living in their dream world. Uh, mental states such as intentionality and causality must be present. We actually got to believe we got some thinkers going on and we can think and we can be intentional about this conversation. Because if I'm just brain fizz, I can't even think about this. And if I can't really make a, a, a decision or cause myself to even think about what we're doing, I can't even have this discussion. And then I got to be able to actually make a decision and change my mind. So I got to be able to have the mental states to think about it, the ability to, to, to change things in my mind. And then I've got to be able to make that decision and go forward with a different decision. Instead of going left, thinking that this way is east or whatever, I need to take a right or, you know, towards the lake. It's, you know, which direction? I actually have to be able to make that decision to go back and, and follow the directions. Whatever we're discussing in life, Okay. I have to have the free will to decide between different ideas. They must be present because otherwise, if I don't have free will, why are we even talking? If I don't even have free will, especially when you're talking to an atheist, do you believe we have free will? No. Then why are we even talking? <laughs> if we're just animals of instinct, brain fizz, and when I shake the pop up and open it, it doesn't have a free will. It's going to fizz. And you think my brain is doing the same thing right now. Then why are we even talking? There's no point. We don't even have free will. The principles of logic, reason, math, and science must be present. Otherwise, statements like this, uh, are, everything we say are going to be the equivalent to statements like this. What does blue taste like on Thursday at 26 a.m.? You know, it's, every sentence we're going to say is going to be total nonsense unless there's logic, reason, math, science, Right? And then lastly, we need the ability to just communicate to each other because if we lived in a world where all six of those things were true, but we were deaf, mute, we couldn't see, we had no arms and legs, there would be no way to even communicate. I'm blind. I don't even know you're next to me. I don't have arms. I can't sign language to you. I, can't have, I don't have ears. I can't hear you. We have to have at least a way to communicate. Okay, does everybody get this? Nod your head if you get this, okay? Thank you. So premise one, the following preconditions must be present to have any meaningful discussion. The universe must exist. 
Two persons must exist. Mental states such as intentionality, causality must be present. Decision-making abilities must be present. Free will to decide between different ideas must be present. The principles of logic, reason, math, and science must be present. The ability to communicate must be present. And I did make a distinction between exist and present after points, after two points, three through seven, because some of these things may not exist in the same way that we exist, but they are present with us. That's a whole nother discussion. But just follow me. They have to be present. Okay. Logic has to be present, but I don't know if logic exists as like a thing. So we don't want to get into arguments about that and get off onto a subject. I do believe the mind of God exists and grounds much of these things I'm talking about here. But uh, my soul exists and all of that. But it would just take 20 more things to list. So I just made it simple if they ever want to argue about present to exist. But you could say as a pre-sup, they do exist. But just make sure that you have time to back up all those things. Okay, so here we go. All these things must be present. Premise number three. Christianity is the only valid explanation for the preconditions. Conclusion, therefore, Christianity must be true. Okay, let that sink in. Amen. You, some of you got it already, but there it is. Now, how do we defend premise two against other world religions? This is easy, one through seven against atheists and non-theists, right? Like that's easy. You're a non-theist. We squash you with that in 30 seconds. We'll, be, we'll, we'll, we'll help you understand this and pray for you, but we know we're confident in this. But premise two is a little bit more difficult when you're dealing with an unbeliever that's a Muslim, a Hindu, etc. Well, now what do you do? Book in the man, book in the man. We've taught you that principle before. When they say, hey, Allah explains all that stuff too. You know, one of our guys uh, the Kalam cosmological argument was really developed by a Muslim. You know, Kalam, this guy, he did it, you know. Well, the problem with that is, we have to show them again, is that, yes, they can borrow from the Christian worldview, and they went as far as they could on their worldview, but the reason that they did was because they borrowed from us. What they need to do is repent of the things that they are wrong in believing and then they can understand why these things exist. Otherwise, they're going to be stuck with a house of sand, their contradictions, okay? And so all other belief systems have inner contradictions and falsehoods. They're false, Baha'ism, false, inner contradictions as well. And remember, I told you that even if somebody started a religion that just said, I am God, one sentence, would that have any inner contradictions? No, technically it wouldn't, but most religions don't just have one document, one belief. You, you look at the totality of the Baha'i belief, and as you study it, and if you were really called to reach them, you would see within there their own contradictions. And like we always show with Islam, one of their biggest inner contradictions is that they affirm the Bible. They affirm Jesus. Well, the moment you do that, you just set yourself up for a big fall. And uh, once again, Hinduism has inner contradictions, etc. So we show them their inter contradictions, and then clearly we show them their falsehood. So the man who makes the one sentence, I am God, 
Okay, yeah, you got us there. You don't have any inner contradictions, but uh, you're not God. Let me tell you why. God is timeless, immaterial, et cetera. Well, I just came into the world like Jesus did at the incarnation. No, Jesus said he would come back and the whole world would see him. Oh, well, no, the spirit of Jesus is in me. No, if anybody, the Bible says, if anybody says the spirit of Jesus is in me, they're an antichrist, you know. So we just boom, shock a lock and nail it down. Well, how do you know Jesus was who he was? Maybe he was just a guy like me making up crazy stuff. Jesus raised from the dead. All other religions say they, their prophets, their people have secret, you know, meetings with God, all of this. That's not our religion. He died for the world to see. He rose for the world to see. Okay. And people who disbelieved in him were converted like Paul through encountering him. And still to today in some of the most hostile environments in the world, people are having dreams and visions of him and are converting. So he is still alive and speaking through uh, dreams and visions through his gospel message through his people. Okay, so I want to get into uh, today the loftiest debate, but let me do the review questions for you guys real quick. Explain the three different forms of Christian apologetics. Here we go. Proof, defense, and offense. As I said at the beginning of the class, today is our last real lesson on the book. You guys should read chapter 10. It's helpful. It's where he gives practical uh, insight. We're going to go through our own on the 19th and prepare for having our atheist friend with us on the 26th. The 19th, I'll be assigning to you different arguments to practice and to do for what we would call a live oral exam with the atheist, giving you guys about five minutes to work your argument. So that will be your pass or fail. And once again, this is not really for a grade. It's just to grow in knowledge, but that is the plan. So read chapter 10 next week for your sake to say you've read the book and clearly understood it. And uh, I may bring up a few points from there, but uh, today is the last day. And he basically ends with the offense. So we've gone over proof, tag, the five classical arguments, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've learned how to defend against the main thing, the problem of evil. And we've also learned, and as I went through them, I was good to do this with you as well, is to give you the main defenses for these arguments, you know, right when, when I went through them, go back and listen to the lecture. You'll remember that I gave you defenses for them. And then today, the offense against unbelief. And of course, I just didn't have time to do it. But this this whole idea of uh, the first one, God doesn't owe man anything. There are so many scriptures there. So you're really addressing the hard issue. Let me just make sure I, I make this clear right now. When we're dealing with the unbeliever in their rebellion, we're asking them, are you willing to change? And if they say yes, and then they're still not changing or receiving the truth, we want to be specific, led by the Holy Spirit, the boom shakalaka power of God, and confront their sin. You know, what is it? Well, I love Muhammad. Okay, well, you love this idol of Muhammad. He's a false god. He's a false prophet. You know, Allah is a false god. You need to turn from this. Something in this appeases your flesh. Well, I want my family to accept me. I don't want to be looked down upon my culture. Okay, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow Jesus. Use the scriptures, use the scriptures. And I have all of that. Uh, I put that there because our author put it there. And then we show them that it's irrational, that it, they make no sense of it. You're trying to be so rational. You're trying to be so logical. And all these faiths, like Muslims especially, I know I bring that up a lot, but they're the second largest religion, and they're trying to grow in America by taking advantage of uninformed Christians. And, and the same thing with Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, whatever. They're going to try to seem so rational, you know, like I was talking to these Jehovah Witnesses. Oh, the Trinity doesn't make sense. They all say that, all three of them, Mormons, Muslims, and Jehovah Witnesses. The Trinity doesn't make sense. We're so rational. You can't make sense of anything in the world without the triune God. Because the Bible says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word, Logos, logic. 
The logic of God has been with us from the beginning, but yet he's not the father. Of course, the father's logical. They share the same essence and the same being, but they're separate persons. How in the world do you explain God having logic and yet God coming in the flesh to share that with us and it not being Jesus? Who in the world is Jesus if not the word of God? You can't call him a prophet because now he becomes a liar. You can't deny that he existed. And so... It doesn't matter who you're talking to. It all comes back down to Jesus and who he is. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And I hope that this uh, class and all that we've gone through, you know, because like I said, this is really kind of ending our content portion. The next two weeks is going to be application. I hope that you can just hear that scripture, which we haven't said a lot, but it will really speak to you now. He's the way, the truth, and the life. That means there's no way to anything except by him. And anybody who gets to a good way of reason, logic, math, morality, does it by him. He is the truth. Anybody that discovers truth from math to which pizza is the best pizza, whatever, you know, if there is such thing of the truth of that or what team's the best, you know, all truth comes through God and life in him, John says, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light of the conscience comes from Jesus. Okay. I hope you see those kind of scriptures in a new way. And then once again, it's absurdity. Atheism, idolatry is absurdity and the preconditional argument. So, you know, basically the three different forms of Christian apologetics, uh, proof, defense, offense. You got these defenses against unbelief as we discussed today. And hopefully you understand the argument from preconditions. Now, if somebody has a quick question, um, ask it now, and then I'll move to this debate. Because trust me, you guys are going to want to hear this. It's pretty awesome. Go ahead. Who's got a quick question? Okay, nobody, thank you. You guys are going to love this. Let's go for it. You know, always towards the end of the school year, they start playing movies and class and stuff like that. You know, this this is kind of our opportunity to do that. This is uh, just amazing. Dr. David Wood, number one apologist, I think, for Islam, but he's a, a Ph.D. in philosophy. He's debating this guy called John Loftus, this guy here who's a backslider who used to study apologetics. And he's going to debate him in a Baptist church. And he is going to rock him so hard. Once we start playing it, give me a thumbs up that you guys can hear it, okay? Good evening. I'd uh, like to thank Pastor Mark and Pastor Nabil and Jackson Memorial for hosting this debate in the conference today. It's good to see so many Christians uh, preparing themselves um, to give a reason for the hope that we have. I'd also like to thank my friend John for jumping right into the lion's den. Uh, John's about to promote atheism in a Baptist church <laughs> full of Christians at an apologetics conference and that's, that's just hard because he has to deal with the overwhelming evidence for God's existence but also because it's just no fun standing in front of, in front of people telling them that their most cherished beliefs are all false people might not like you <laughs> but I think I can safely say here at the beginning that we love you John no matter what you say about our beliefs this evening, we love you as the father loved the prodigal son in Luke 15. So don't worry about offending anyone tonight. Don't worry about hurting anyone's feelings. I want you to come at us with everything you've got. And I hope you'll see by the end of this debate that time to come home, John. <laughs> 
Time to go. The topic before us is, does God exist? I say he does. And to defend this claim, I'll be presenting a very simple argument, which I call the juggernaut. Uh, my argument goes like this. If John and I are having this debate, then God exists. John and I are having this debate, therefore God exists. <laughs> now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, that's a horrible argument. The Christian debater is going to embarrass us this evening. <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. The juggernaut is unstoppable. <laughs> but it does seem strange to say that having a debate somehow shows that God exists. What could I possibly have been thinking when I made this my argument? Well, as you'll see over the next two hours, I'm convinced that without God, nothing makes sense. The claim that God does not exist is confused, indefensible, and ultimately self-refuting. And to understand why this is, to understand why nothing makes sense without God, let's think about what's required for us to be doing what we're doing right now. What needs to be true in order for John and I to be here debating the existence of God. The first thing we need is a world to debate in. Without the universe we see around us, events like this could not take place. But the interesting thing about the existence of our universe is that it points to a powerful, personal, timeless, immaterial creator. For thousands of years, Jews and Christians have maintained that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For most of that time, atheists have held that the universe is eternal. And these seem to be the only two possibilities. Either the universe has existed for all eternity, We can't hear you, P. Joe. Oops, thank you. Okay, so I don't want to take the whole time in class um, listing out his things, but basically he's going to start going through the things we just went in class, okay? So he's going to basically name all of those things. So we're going to kind of move through this. Um, he's going to do it in his own way. I think he only lists five, and he just nails them all down. Like, just take for an example here. He's going to say, without us having consciousness, we can't do it. So I think he's right about that point. To reason about the existence of God makes perfect sense on my worldview, but it makes no sense on John's worldview. So if John wants us to take his argument seriously, he'll have to give us an explanation consistent with naturalism that accounts for the reliability of human reason. Until he does, we'll have to regard all of his claims as incoherent and self-refuting. Finally, as John and I debate the existence of God, our reasoning is governed by certain logical truth, the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle, certain valid argument forms, and so on. When John and I present arguments, we're presupposing that there are logical absolutes, rules of reasoning that cannot be violated. If I say God exists, and John says God doesn't exist, we can't both be right. Why? Because if you say we're both right, you'd be saying that God exists and doesn't exist. And Okay, so you see where he's going. He's just going to say laws of logic exist, etc. Now, his opening statement really has nothing to do with what David says. Uh, David is going to begin to rebut some of it, so we're not going to take time to really listen to him. But uh, you can hear David's going to, David will repeat the things he actually said that dealt with his argument, okay? And so you'll hear some of the answers to people. I just don't have time to play everything, obviously. I'm trying to fast forward you through a debate here. 
Thank you, John, for that opening st statement. Let's see how your case holds up against the juggernaut. In my opening statement, I showed that without God, we couldn't even be having this debate right now, and I presented six requirements for a debate like this, all of which support my worldview, not John's worldview. First, I argue that since the universe began to exist, it must have been cause, and this cause must be powerful, personal, timeless, and immaterial. John's only response was that cosmologists agree that there was no singularity. Uh, let me quote you some uh, what some physicists and cosmologists say on this issue. Uh, almost. So basically, he must have made some mistake, or he's just a he just said nonsense because everybody believes this. So there's every now and then there's a study that comes out to thinks to think that there wasn't a singularity, but the biggest minds have already discovered that, and that's a settled thing. So he just basically rebukes him on that, which I don't even hear anybody say that anymore. So we don't need to hear that. Let's keep going. I offer DNA as an example of complex biology. So he gives the theological, one of his things was the argument of design. You have to have DNA to be a person and all of this. And, and, and I guess, um, you know, John tries to say you can get this by evolution. John says that there are biological organisms that aren't perfectly designed as a response. And what John said here is that uh, because organisms are not perfect, that must mean God didn't make them perfect, because if God was perfect, you'd create everything that's perfect. But first of all, we live in a fallen world. But then uh, David takes another argument here. I really want to just kind of move you through this and then get you to the cross-examination where it really all goes down. Now, think about this. If I say God is going to design a laptop, how much RAM would that laptop have? Infinite, right? Well, I think I would ask, what's it for? If it's just for checking email and uh, typing up some, uh, some short papers, I would say God's probably going to give it enough RAM for whatever it's supposed to do. And when God creates the world, he's creating uh, ecosystems. It was just funny because I listened to this today, and it's moving so much slower than I thought it would. We're already like 10 minutes in. It's like 9.010. I only got 20 minutes to get your feedback and the thing. So let me fast forward some more. Okay, he rocks them again. It's just trust me, this guy is getting rocked, okay? Now is the cross-examination. I, I want to try to let this play at least – I fast-forwarded so you could at least – See how a guy gets rocked in a cross-examination, okay? So uh, David Wood brought up the preconditional argument against his unbelief. He tried to throw off some rabbit trails on the rebuttals. Um, David Wood is slamming them. But where the real debate always takes place is in the cross-examination, where you make the person interact with your beliefs. And so what David's going to do right off the bat is hold him to what is called verificationism. The guy basically believes, unless I can verify it, I don't believe it. And he's going to show him that's a nonsensical belief. You can't even verify the belief, I believe in verification, because that's a logical statement, and you can't test logical statements with science. Okay, you can't test I the, the sentence, I only believe in verificationism. So here's where it gets good. Hopefully I can let this play for five minutes and then give us the chance to discuss more. But I have the links in the notes, obviously, and you guys can watch the whole thing. It will really bless you. And I felt bad for the man, but as the Bible says, answer a fool according to his folly because he's trying to take people away from Christianity and he himself is deceived. We really want to see him come to Christ. I should, why should we be suspicious automatically that it's false? For instance, I'm taught my eight.
John, you, you continue to say that people believe in God because that's what we're taught to believe, and obviously that's not uh, always the case. Again, I, I, my dad told me he was God. Uh, I know there, there are former Muslims in the room. They obviously don't believe what they are taught. Uh, but my question is, um, if uh, if we're taught to believe something, why should why should we be suspicious automatically that it's false? For instance, I, I'm taught my ABCs, I'm taught the Pythagorean theorem, I'm taught what foods to eat and not to eat, and uh, generally, lots of what we're told, even though we're told uh, these things, happen to be true. So why should we automatically be suspicious of, of certain things? Because there are certain things, I mean, because there are different types of things. The ABCs are useful for you know, writing and speaking. There would be some things I could confirm for myself. So my mom told me that China existed. You know, I would believe her. And uh, of course, if my teacher told me the same thing, I would probably believe her too. If I actually went to visit China, you see, then I could uh, verify it for myself. There, these kind of beliefs, it depends on how you learn them, what kind of beliefs they are, how you test them. and. I can do the math myself. Someone teaches me that two plus two is four. I can do the math. But all I can do, man, anything I can verify for myself, I don't care where the mom is. So, 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 but, so it's, it's, it's a question of, yes, we're taught it, but we can go out and test it and see that it's true and find strong evidence. Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay now, would, would, you, would, you, would you apply the same thing to moral values? Uh, we're taught, you know, don't murder, don't steal, don't rape. Um, things like that, uh, would you say we have to be suspicious of those because those are more like the God hypothesis and not like the ABCs or the Pythagorean theorem? No, no, those are human universe. Okay, now just get the argument here. At some point in the debate, John had said most people believe in God because they were taught it. If no one taught them, they wouldn't believe in God. And, and this is actually funny because David was brought up in an atheistic household where his dad said he was God. And as an atheist, he became somewhat psychotic and tried to kill his dad with a ball peeing hammer and ended up in the hospital. I mean, ended up in jail and in the mental ward of the hospital. And over time, God convicted him. And he became a Christian. He has a powerful 30 minute uh, testimony video on his uh, website, David Wood. You can look it up. And so he's saying a religion is not something we just teach children. It's the evidence that God puts in our heart. And so he's saying, uh, you know, we believe all these other things. Why wouldn't you just believe that? Uh, that, that this is a natural, and, and actually Alvin Plantinga calls this a basic belief that God is real, that children are raised up to understand a supernatural mindset. Sometimes they can become superstitious or have nightmares, but they're very open to the idea there's a God and they understand they didn't create themselves, etc. And so he tries to say, well, we can believe some things that our parents teach us or, or you know, our mom and dad teach us because it's uh, verifiable. And that's why I said we get into verification. But now uh, David's going to put this back on him. He's going to attack his worldview, and he's going to say, well, the laws of morality, they're not verified in the same way you go verify China. And remember, the, the moral argument is an argument for God's existence, right? So he's going to say, like, you know there's these things called moral laws. And you're going to hear him, John Loftus, start admitting it, but he's going to say, how do you prove it, right? Let's keep going. The morals, I mean, and they, they seem to be tested out. I mean, I think more and more people from democracy. I'm saying about religion because there are so many of them and they have adherents who are so passionate about them and it's obvious that religious diversity is spread over the globe. Now, and it's also this, 
obvious. There's not a lot of evidence that can convince one another. Now, you say there are some people who get convinced of one or the other, and that is true. But it seems like to me that if you say of the Muslim faith, I'm going to examine the Quran as if it's a human document in order to test it to see whether or not it's true or not, then I fault you for a double standard for not doing that with the Bible by assuming... Again, John, I do come to Christianity from an atheistic background. You're acting like I, uh, I've never been through this. But I want to get back to what I asked you because I don't think you, you addressed it. Uh, if we're given a moral command uh, by our parents, our parents tell us, don't go bash so-and-so's head in. Don't do it. Uh, and if we follow your reasoning, we'd have to say, it seems, well, is that true? I've been taught that, but what independent, solid confirmation can I have? And it seems the only thing you've offered is that it's widespread around humanity. Well, belief in the supernatural world, belief in the soul, belief in God is widespread among humanity. So, uh, let, to, to, to be more specific, if, let's say, Jeffrey Dahmer, who killed an 817 people, was standing here and he says, uh, John, uh, I was taught once that I, uh, that, um, that I should meet people, and I came to reject that. Now, can you give me a good reason, because we demand hard evidence, remember? Can you give me hard evidence for why I should not cannibalize people? I can give you good evidence. Of course, I can't rely on the Bible, because in Jeremiah, God uh, is so upset with some people for sacrificing their children that he decides to make them eat their children. But uh, I don't have that problem, because I don't believe the Bible. I don't have to worry about those sorts of things. Could you answer the question? No, I was just getting to it. <laughs> uh, it seemed like to me that those kind of things are not exactly uh, the empirical type of evidence claims, but they sure are experiential. And I, I think that I've got a daughter, and I don't want her raped, I don't want her killed, and I think that it's good for others to, uh, to, to have that same kind of assurances. And so we're going to put children off limits. You know, don't touch my children. You know, otherwise you go to jail. You know, and uh, you know you you, uh, you, will, you don't do that to my child. I won't do it to your child. And uh, likewise, and on and on. So, so I don't, I don't morality was, is just a social construct. I'm agreeing not to bash your head in if you agree not to bash my head in. But the actual moral value—it's morally wrong to hurt someone. Would would have no place in, in your view. That would be a moral standard. Oh no no no! I, I think it's morally wrong to hurt somebody. What, well, I, you, you're asking me for the basis. I'm, I'm asking you for hard evidence because you say you have to give hard evidence for things that you're taught to believe. We're taught to believe those. What's the hard evidence for uh, these moral values? Well, all, you, all you've said is, well, you teach them to them because it can be good. You could say the exact same thing about belief in an afterlife and belief in God. You would reject that argument there. So why are you applying the same reasoning here that you would reject when it's when it, when it comes to theism? David, there must be hard evidence for that sort of stuff because we don't see murder and mayhem in the streets of Norfolk or Chesapeake. There must be hard evidence. We for see it. a little. Then, then, give it, then give us hard evidence. What, again, what's the hard evidence? You're saying lots of people believe in the same things. Again, lots of people believe in God. Lots of most people throughout history have believed in some sort of immaterial soul. You would reject it. You would say, look, I don't care if everyone held the same view. As long as there's not hard evidence for it, then we, we shouldn't believe it. So uh, on there's, the hard, there's hard evidence that when uh, someone hurts somebody, that they feel pain. I mean, uh, that, but, that but goes without well, saying. It seems like to me that. If you don't want, if you use violence on someone, then violence will return on your head. If you steal from someone, if you're an accountant of some kind of big corporation, and you start stealing from the, the bank, 
you will get caught. You know, those types, those sorts of things happen all the time. So it's just better overall. So, so John, look, look, to look, live a good life. look at what you just said. You, if you do something wrong, you might get caught. Therefore, you should believe in these moral values. Suppose we make it a law that if anyone believes in, that if anyone rejects belief in God, uh, we're going to kill it. Then you'd have to say, well, we should all believe in God because not because it would have nothing to do with what's true. It's because there are consequences. How do you answer something that's so ridiculous? And he says, how do you answer something so ridiculous? Let me let him finish here. It's, it's not ridiculous, John. You said if there are, we should we should hold to these moral values because if we don't, we might get caught. Well, all, the, all you're saying there is you should believe in the moral values because if you don't, there could be some bad consequence. If we invent some sort of bad consequence for not believing in God, would you therefore say, ah, belief in God is suddenly true? All right. Does everybody see that right there? We have um, 12, uh, 10 minutes left to discuss this amongst ourselves. Okay, let me just summarize real quick what he did. He started with the precondition argument. He rebutted whatever weak things the guy brought up throughout the argument, even him bringing up bad science and uh, not understanding half of what he was saying. And you can listen to the debate. He's kind of a confused man. And then here at the end, uh, David Wood had what we would say the whole the whole field to play. He could have played any argument, any direction. He just happens to stick with morality. I think that was one of his preconditions because in the discussion, you don't want to lie to each other. There has to be the precondition. We won't lie to each other. Um, and so he just says, do you believe in morality? Uh, okay, guys, I'm going to put my, my screen back up. Sorry. He's going to say, do you believe in morality? And if you believe in morality, you've got to believe in a higher standard, justify the standard. And so when you justify the standard, uh, when you can't justify the standard, rather, you're left contradicting yourself, which we kind of go back to that rational, irrational thing. And uh, I'm going to try to find my video here. But as I try to find my video, why don't I get some feedback from you guys in the last uh, a few minutes that we have? Uh, take your time, but uh, let's go one at a time, please. Yeah. Comments or questions? Go ahead. Um, I was what uh, David would have did at the basically when you started. She would even doubt it, you know, if you're talking about like he was talking about, oh, dude, God, uh, the, the belief in God's not rational because you're taught it, even though, you know, obviously he was an atheist and he kept ignoring that. But the way he questioned him, even on that statement, like, OK, you're taught it. What, why does that even what what are you saying? Almost like yeah, it's almost just like uh, they, an atheist will bring that up and they'll just put a tone on it that seems like it's attacking something, but it's not really attacking anything. Like you're taught lots of things. Does that make it innately false? Exactly. And you, I think you've heard me, or I know uh, Yuli's heard me say this, but I know you came out with me a few times. Joe B, tell me if you've heard it, where somebody says uh, the Bible's written by man. And I said, things written by man aren't wrong. Uh, two plus two could be written by man. And it's right. Have you heard me say that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Keep going, Joby. And um, I, I, I just, I, I found that funny because growing up in uh, a high school like Taft, you know, where it's. Uh, guy, always like, Hold on, Joby. I'm sorry. Is he breaking up for you guys too? Because he's coming in and yeah. out for me. Yeah, yeah that might. Yeah, yeah that, I don't yeah. know what that is. Yeah. Sorry. Hey, Joby, find a better place to come in. We don't want to lose your thoughts. Okay. 
But let's go to someone else real quick. I think I get what you're going for there, but I do want to hear back from you. Maybe try your phone and it will probably come in better. Okay, who's next? Questions or comments? Uh, Yeah, I have a comment. Um, Just watching the the debate between, uh, you know, David Wood and and, uh, John, right? That was his name? John John Loftus, yeah. Yeah, John John Loftus. You know, just how Roman says how, you know, they suppress the truth. It's just shown so clearly before my eyes how even scripture just proves it to be true that, that back and forth, you know, a person really just presses the truth because they don't want to uh, be obedient to uh, to Jesus. And what's crazy is that he was back. It was a backslider, right? Correct. Yeah. So that just blows my mind even more how he doesn't even want to just because he wants to sin. <laughs> Amen. And you see, this is where we're not Calvinists. We believe people can backslide. We're not Baptists. Once saved, always saved. As a dog returns to a vom- the vomit, a pig to its its uh, dirtiness, its pen, pig pen, so can a sinner return back to their ways of folly. That's what Peter says. That's what Proverbs says. The Bible talks about this. Judas turned back. Peter almost got turned back. God's mercy brought him back in, though. I mean, you know, it can happen. And he became a fool. I mean, literally, he's arguing like a fool. And it's not to be rude to say, like, he's not made in the image of God. He is, but he's ignoring that. And as you just said, uh, he, he's, he's on one side of the contradiction, which is I do believe in morality, but I can't explain it. But I've also heard other people say, uh, that the, the, uh, debate I put in last week's notes with Frank Turek and an atheist on the unbelievable show, uh, the show that's comes out of England. Uh, the one guy just said, well, I'll give up morals altogether. Well, the moment you just did that, the discussion's over too, because how do I know you're telling me the truth? Maybe you're an undercover Christian right now, and you just want to keep testing me in my beliefs. Maybe you're a, a Muslim, and you're lying about being an atheist. How can I believe everything you're saying is true? What if I show you actual evidence, and you still don't want to believe me because you're a liar, just like how to catch a pres- predator? There's actual evidence. They're coming to molest these children. They were set up. It was a sting. They have their email names. They're bringing the whipped cream and the, the sex toys to the house, et cetera, et cetera. Now they're just going to lie through their teeth because liars lie. Right. Once you throw away morality, the Bible says you can't even talk to a fool. Now, I would say to them, do you want to learn more? You know, something like that before I would just shut down everybody. I'm not just about shutting down conversations, but I think you guys get my point that unless we have some basis of some common preconditions, we can't talk to an unbeliever because then we're arguing in circles. And I think you need to have the permission to walk away at times, but uh, certainly let them see it before you do. You know, just be like, oh, I'm done. Contradiction, you know. Yuli, did you want to say anything else before we go back to Joe B? Uh, no, that was about it. Sweet. Thank you for the comment. Joe B, you're on, baby. Yeah, I'm going I'm to try to use my headphones and, uh, instead. See oh, sounding much better. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, no, I, in high school, I remember people being uh, always saying this, like no matter what background they had. Because uh, many of the people that said they were Christian, you know, they, they didn't have a Christian worldview at all. So they would always say, you know, be open-minded. Um, oh bro we just lost you again joe b stay on let's get after class chat i just don't want to lose these last four minutes for people who listen online and uh, we get about 100 views a week so guys that's why i'm kind of strict to the time and i feel bad joe b i know you got a lot to say uh we'll get you to call in in just a minute okay on our 15 minute after class chat uh daryl chris or juan any of you guys want to weigh in for our last uh, four minutes yeah, yeah. So, so the, the assertion of truth is based on scripture, but the atheists show that 
showed that he only viewed the carnal man, like in First Corinthians. Um, the carnal man only does with sights. This is what he sees, what he touched, the five natural senses. That's what he said. I was taught this, but I was able to verify with my senses. Exactly. Carnal man. So, and it just shows me, you know, the difference between the spirit and carnality. Yeah. Good point. And let me just add to that as well. If he does not humble himself, which I do believe, because remember, we, we believe in free will. If he does not humble himself, he will live as if God was not in the world. That doesn't come against Romans. No, he's doing it in suppression. And he very may, very may well pass a lie detector test right now that says, I really don't believe in God. And that may be true. But we know that he's doing that from suppression. He's lying to himself, choosing to live without that truth, just as um, a married man who cheats on his wife and eventually uh, hardens his heart towards his family. And you ask him three years from now, do you believe it was wrong to leave your family? And he may very, well, very may well be able to deceive himself to say it was a good thing and actually pass a lie detector test. Um, I do think that those things take time, and sadly, people do suppress the truth and, and live in lies. But here's the testimony. When we go to atheistic nations or unreached people groups, they are oftentimes the most receptive once we get into their culture. And that's why they're saying right now that the Chinese church is growing faster there than any other part in the world, and Muslims are coming to Christ right now by the hundreds and by the thousands. Uh, once again, in hostile areas, because they're so hungry for more. I mean, imagine this, you're, you're in China, a socialist country, and a high suicide rate, and you're only allowed to have one child, and after that, you have to abort them, and you're just under this pressure, and, and you're just being told to worship your ancestors or some Buddhist tradition, and your heart just starts to cry out. You're seeing the sunset. You're seeing the love you have for your child. And then God speaks to you through a, a, a person at your job or something. It's like, boom, you're humble. You're ready. The same thing with the Muslim. They're, they're just shocked to see what this true look of Islam is. You know, ISIS, they, they're the most scholarly branch. They know what they're doing. They're showing them. They're converting them and are trying to convert them and say, this is what Islam is. This is what the Hadith teaches. And all of a sudden you get this idea like, wow, if this is Islam, I don't want anything to do with it. But where's but where is God? Who is God? And then you get a dream or a vision, you know, like I got the book behind me, Mosque and Miracles. Well, on that note, let's have Juan close us out in prayer. And we got the 15 minute afterward, guys, to hang out. We'll definitely get to hear from Joe B. We'll be patient with him, even if he does cut in and out or put him on the phone line. But remember, guys, to read Chapter 10 for next week and get ready to do some practical application and start praying for Spencer. If you haven't already, Spencer's going to be with us September 19th, our last day of class. And uh, we're going to do some practical application with him, truly believing that God will change his heart. And then we'll have off the 26th. And Lord willing, we'll start a new fresh 301. I need at least five students from my elders and deacons to start in October, and that will be on Thursday, October 5th. So thank you for those who join us either live here on Facebook, the recording on Facebook, or at the podcast. And you can find our podcast at Metro Praise International, either at an app store, Google, iTunes, or just on uh, podcast channels. You can find us there. Okay, Juan, please close us out in prayer. Dear Lord, I just I I just ask you to let us be like what P Peter said that we may give an account 
for our defense, Lord, for the reasons yes. we believe, Lord. Let us uh, demolish every lie from the devil, Lord. Let us defend our tr- the truth, Lord. Let us stand on the pillar of truth, Lord, which is Jesus Christ. And I just pray, Lord, that yes. we may proclaim your you, Lord, that you are the truth, Lord. Yes. And I just pray in the world of lies, Lord, that we may show people um, the truth, Lord. Take Jesus. blinders off. And I just pray, Lord, that people who are being blessed by this podcast, Lord, um, I just ask that they will be blessed or that they will use these in their lives. This will not just be education, Lord, but application, Lord. Yes. And I thank you, Lord, for Pastor Joel and the class. And I just ask you, Lord, that, that people's lives will be changed, Lord, by the spirit and truth, Lord. And I pray and I, and I say truth. Because apologetics, we defend proof and uh, do offense with the truth. And I just yes, ask Lord. for you to understand both. In Jesus' name, pray, man. Amen.